0: You have this like weird balance of, hey, don't give up on your dreams. Don't give up. Don't give up. Right. But then it's like, no, that thing that you're working on, maybe you should give up on that. Like, don't give up on like the larger dream of what you want to do, but maybe be flexible as far as the specific thing that's going to get you there.
1: Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I've got my co-hostess with the mostess on the line. The boss man is here. What's going on? We're both in Austin, right? That's the funny part about this? That's the funny part about this, as was today's guest, who my new joke is like half the people I get on a Zoom call with are my neighbors. It is this thing I've been writing a little bit about it for next week's episode. Should I talk about this idea... It feels like Austin continues to mop up bootstrap internet talent. Just more and more. I've got some private anecdotes. I've got personal experience. I've got today's guest. More and more talents coming to the great city of Austin, Texas. Pretty cool. Can't be bothered to drive to each other's houses, by the way. Might as well just get on the Zoom call. (laughs) It's easier. Saves (laughs) gas. It's the responsible thing to do. One of the coolest things about this potty-in is like, I think there's like, These law of attraction stuff, like people recommend us topics and episodes based on what we're talking about that might be useful to us. Today, I made some notes about what we're going to talk about in the amazing story of going.com, formerly Scott's Cheap Flights, founded like for and by Digital Nomads. And this business has turned into a behemoth with over 60 employees and really impressive non-public, but I'll say very, very impressive annual recurring revenue. Today, we're going to have the CEO of going.com, Brian Kidwell. One of the things we're going to talk about today is this idea of product market fit. And I personally remember when Brian, instead of jumping to the next country, the next waterfall, the next travel adventure, moved to an apartment in Austin, Texas, you know, probably just got his food delivered three times a day. And we didn't see the guy for years. If you want to go from an
0: 18-letter domain to a five-letter domain, you got to work hard. That's the bottom <laughs> line.
1: <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, com is essentially a paid newsletter. They have a freemium option. Where you can get things like really affordable flights all around the world. And at their premium levels, you can get things like pricing mistakes and like a custom dashboard that gives you specific to the airports that you like and want to go to some of the best deals possible. So that's essentially what Going is. So I think what's interesting about Brian's story, Ian, is he, you know, cracked the digital nomad code. He figured out how to fund his travels. But when he stumbled on his partnership with his business partner, Scott, you know, Brian's sort of like the business guy, Scott's sort of the product guy. And they knew they had something here. And he got rid of the dodgy Wi-Fi, the sort of constantly changing circumstances of the global traveler and moved here to Austin, Texas. Like we mentioned, you know, this story really embodies so many TMBA themes from going from like a solopreneur to a leader, carving out space to do deep work, even when you have a large organization. Something I've been thinking about this very week, Ian. And I know that many listeners to the show have actually been subscribers and customers of the newsletter that Scott Key started back in 2013, but maybe aren't so sure about the story behind the brand. So that we're going to get into that today. So we kicked off the call by asking Brian to sort of reflect more broadly about his thoughts on the newsletter business model. One of the things a lot of successful newsletters do is they sell access to information that if like more people have that information ostensibly, it gets a little bit less valuable. And I'm wondering if you had that challenge at going where... You know, if you're sending the cheap flights out to like 10,000 people and I want one of them, maybe I'm less likely to get the flight. So how do you guys manage that kind of scarcity dynamic? That
0: question has been asked since I think the first year, oh, if this gets too big, then this will not be as valuable. And that just hasn't played out. I think if, if there was an area where that happens. It's probably the mistake fares, but I think that's more of a a timing thing, right? If the airlines can update their prices once an hour, then you kind of have this like one hour opportunity for us to find a send it out in the shortest version. There's uh, there's much longer versions that aren't caught as quickly. And some of those could sell out. What we found is there's usually so many seats available, so many dates available. You kind of like multiply it out not every deal works for every person. So we haven't really run into that issue. And in fact, we've been able to add more people and better technology behind finding the deals that we're finding even more deals than we've ever had before. But I think that's a an interesting thing where they're like, if you look at a newsletter model in general, does it decrease in terms of value as more people are have access to the same material? I don't know. Maybe it increases in value because you have more people to talk about it with or something. I'm not sure. It's so
1: easy to talk yourself into the price point, say for a financial newsletter. Okay, everybody else gets the information as well, but all I need to do is make one transaction a year that is benefited from this information. And then my investment is paid off. And I'm assuming a lot of your customers think the same way, like one flight, Every year, and I'm good. Yeah, that's all it takes. There's like just an interesting dynamic there that it's just such a no-brainer. And that's kind of like one of my pricing philosophies I I don't always embody, but I think about a lot, is like all pricing should be a no-brainer. Like you should never be putting a price in front of your clients where they have to like be talked into it and stuff. Just be like, hell yeah. Of course I would pay
0: that. Yeah, it's like, of course that makes sense. If if the product does what it says it's going to do and I can follow up on it, then... Yeah, it's a no-brainer. I mean, that's how I think about books, right? It's like, all right, I'm going to spend 20 bucks on a book. I'm going to spend five to 10 hours reading that book. And if I just get one new idea, makes up for the $20 for sure, and probably makes up for the five to 10 hours. When you cross that threshold with your price, where people start to second guess it, you have to provide, I guess, enough value.
1: When you met Scott, can you tell me a little bit about the partnership conversation and what the origin of that was and Especially, I think one of the interesting opportunities is for people listening to shows like this, we have like digital marketing skills and, and there's a lot of like companies with assets out there in the world that if you created a combination of the two assets, like in Ian and I's case, like he created products, but he didn't market them. And so there was like yeah. this partnership that came about from that. Can you talk us through how your partnership has
0: started? So I guess going back to 2015, I was building a travel site community at the time. I was trying to build something that would save people money on travel products. And that's why I'd reached out to Scott to buy a couple of subscriptions. And then I also did an interview with him to share that information to my followers. It was very, very small. But Scott and I would hop on a call. And once again, my background was in digital marketing. His wasn't. He was you know, a great journalist and great at finding cheap flights. I would just share with him what I would do. I was like, oh, here's an idea for you. Here's <laughs> here's some things, some suggestions. I wasn't really looking for anything out of it, but it was just like, oh, I like what you're doing and I I want to help because it's awesome. And we're kind of in in the same space. And after a couple months, he emailed me and was like, Hey, what do you think about working on this together? Right. And it wasn't, hey, do you want to be business partners? It was what do you think about working on this thing, right? Because it was super, super tiny. Neither one of us thought it would be what it is today. And we just signed a very, very, very simple, like laughable profit sharing agreement at the time. And I think within a few months of working together, it was like, okay, one, this is bigger than either one of us thought it would be. And then two, we need to actually turn this into a company because it was was nothing. Right. And so then, of course, we get the paperwork figured out, have the conversations. I think we lucked out in terms of who the other person was, because there's like, there's all of the bad stories about, you know, what not to do and and make sure you have vesting and, and all of this stuff. We didn't set anything like that up. It was just like, you get X, you get Y, partners, done. So we're I was still going at it, you know, today at building this thing. I think if I were to go back or, or give advice to others, I would recommend some sort of vesting agreement because it, it makes so much sense. And there's so many things that- Talk through how that works. Because one of the things I've
1: been reading a lot lately, you know, Ian and I are going all this business coaching and then I see on the web, everybody's writing, hey, never do a 50-50 partnership. It's horrible. Horrible. Hey. Like you just Google it online and people are like, oh, it's such a horrible idea. And I'm like, I don't know.
0: I don't know. I don't think it is. I think it could be horrible with certain people, right? But like with Scott and I, there's always been a very clear distribution of responsibilities. And we're both very reasonable people in terms of having a conversation and trying to figure out what is best for the company and what we're trying to build. Not playing power games. We're just trying to build this thing and and we're excited about what we're doing.
1: Well, that's one of the values of 50-50 is that you can't get one up on the other person. You're freaking married to you him, can't. man.
0: Yeah. I think there could be like a lack of clarity, maybe a lack of leadership, a lack of decision-making that could come with split equity, I guess. I could definitely see the downside. And definitely if you partner with the wrong person, they just walk. That's 50% of the Is company. that why
1: you say you're the CEO now? Because like, did you guys decide that you're going to be the one making the final decisions for the current Time period of the company, or
0: I think it just goes back to what our responsibilities have always been. Like, we sort of laughed when we first put CEO and COO on anything because it was like, what does that even mean? Like, both of us are just trying to fix things right now. It's an absolute mess. Like, I don't care what the title is. I will literally do anything to make this thing successful. But then as the team scaled, yeah, we had like all of our leadership team reporting to me. And then Scott was had the CEO title. And so like it created confusion in terms of some of the decision making. And so yeah, Scott and I had a conversation and and after a while, we just decided that would help clarify roles uh, or clarify decision making, but not much changed in terms of our responsibilities. Like going back to day one, I mean it was like the same. Scott is focused on being in front of members and helping them get cheap flights and studying up on airfare and being out there for them. And and I've always been focused on building the business and making the businesses as great as possible and the operations and the finance and all that stuff. So it's more of like where our interests went. And I I think it was pretty lucky in terms of how that played out.
1: Countless listeners to the show started a business in 2015-14 timeframe, but very few of us have 60 employees and the footprint that Going has. When you kind of do the post-game analysis of that, what do you think separated you guys from the pack in terms of your ability to grow and
0: create profits? I would love to say that it's something that I did or we did or something like that, where we have this master plan from the beginning. But I, I think a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time with an idea that connects with a lot of people. I have a friend, right, that's been building a company for six years or something, they were in the process of shutting it down, stumbled upon something else, and just reached unicorn status. You know, like you could be doing the exact same thing with the exact same team, the exact same skill set, apply it to a different idea and have a wildly different outcome. What kind of generalized advice does that cash out into,
1: you know, because you spend a lot of time around people who've achieved the breakout success. Does it mean yep.
0: just try more things? I think it could. you have this like weird balance of, hey, don't give up on your dreams, don't give up, don't give up, right? But then it's like, no, that thing that you're working on maybe you should give up on that, like don't give up on like the larger dream of what you want to do, but maybe be flexible as far as the specific thing that's gonna get you there mm. uh, like I knew I just I really wanted to build a business, and so I tried all sorts of things to get here and. I think it's like the longer that you can stay in the game and the more ideas and and things that you can try, the higher the likelihood of success you have. I think knowing what I know now, there's certain business models that I'm like much more attracted to. Let's talk about those. I think it depends on like what you're optimizing for. If you're optimizing for building a large business, there are certain sacrifices that you likely have to make in terms of how you set up your your world versus like, hey, I want to do this thing with myself and maybe one other person. But with that, I get freedom. And I, I think we went from that version to the let's take this thing to as big as we can make it.
1: How did you make that decision? And I'm curious about how that cashes out in terms of, I'm assuming you're
0: saying there's some lifestyle sacrifices? Yeah, I mean, I went from living in Southeast Asia and South America and jumping from country to country every month or two months, which was an incredible experience, to realizing that if I was going to do that, I wasn't going to be able to give this company everything I had at the very earliest stages. And that's why I moved to Austin. And I just went, I literally went heads down for two years, didn't really make any friends.
1: I remember this period. I remember sitting around with mutual friends, hearing the rumors of like, you were like the white cheetah in the forest that somebody had spotted at some point. <laughs> Tell me about what that was like.
0: Yeah. I like I wouldn't leave my apartment for like two weeks. And now I realize that's really unhealthy and and wasn't great. I probably would have been more more effective, you know, if I would like go out and make friends and leave my apartment. But I think it just it was like everything I ever wanted was to build a business. And I felt like I had this one shot to do it. And I was willing to not have fun not make friends, not do all these things in order to make it happen. Was it necessary? Probably not. But it was like, that's the story that I told myself.
1: I can think of a handful of business models and a handful of founders in Austin who did the same thing. They went into a cave at a critical moment. There must have been something that
0: indicated to you it was a critical moment. I was in Brazil at the time. I was out there for like three weeks, signed a lease for an apartment I had never been in in Austin for six months. And I just wanted consistent Wi-Fi. I wanted Amazon delivery, right? Like I wanted Instacart shopping. Like I wanted to make my life as easy as possible and remove all of the additional friction so that I could just focus on building business. Because I felt like those things were getting in the way. I was like, oh, I couldn't find consistent Wi-Fi or I had to go to a JW Marriott to work out a every day. And then, you know, that's not not great for productivity added to the operational burden of just living. And I figured if I could simplify all of that, I could just focus a hundred percent on what I wanted to do. I think part of that too, is doing a lot of things that I didn't know how to do already. And so it was like solving the problem with time rather than expertise
1: you said like you started the company one year out of college and then you said the words operations and finance. And I'm like, whoa, how do you know about operations and finance? Those are enormous topics, you know? Yeah. Learning the hard way. (laughs) By solving the problems like with hours at your desk.
0: Yeah, exactly. Basically how I looked at it pretty early on was I need to get this to good enough. And once I get it to good enough, then we can hire somebody that has done this before. Like I, I think that's something that I thought about too early on was, hey, do we want to try and systemize and create SOPs for every area of the business as it is today and then find someone that we can train up on 10 bucks an hour or something like that? Or do we want to go out and hire somebody that has done this before, has solved this problem before at another company that we might aspire to be like someday? And let them teach us a thing or two, and that's the approach that we took. And I think that going back to one of your earlier questions is like what what led to some of that success. I think that way of hiring people that were definitely smarter than than us contribute to a lot of that as well. Or we're, we're learning from them, right? Rather than building a process that someone has to follow when it's like maybe that process is unnecessary or wrong, and you just wouldn't know that if you didn't have somebody else in the mix.
1: I know what it feels like to show up to a job board and understand that whatever price you're going to pay and whatever amount of time you're going to spend writing that job ad, that's just a fraction of the whole deal. Hiring takes a ton of time and money, especially if you get it wrong. That's why in 2023, we've created a more affordable way for you to work directly with our experienced recruiters to help you get the result and the hire you're seeking Check out our new service, it's called Guided Hire and it starts at just $14.97. With Guided Hire, an experienced team member on our team will help you determine a hiring strategy and promote to the best candidates, even if they're not on our own job board. Dynamite jobs. will help you track them down and hand deliver and filter for you only the very best. Applications. Our recruiters are executing this best-in-class strategy all day, every day, with great results. In fact, last year, we made over 100 direct hires. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Let me just read some of these. Our recent hire, senior designer in Colorado, a full-stack engineer in Kosovo, technical support in Hungary, technical project manager in Dominican Republic, all kinds of jobs, all kinds of locations, all kinds of salaries. Check out our team at remotefirstrecruiting.com. We can help run the strategy for you and guide you to the result you seek. So save time, get expert support, and execute a world-class hiring strategy for every single hire. Head on over to remotefirstrecruiting.com and give the team a call. I think for a lot of people, the idea of 65 team members blows the mind. How do you control it actually I think control is the word a lot of people worry about and then we get as founders we get anxious about control and so we say we don't want team members you know the idea of 65 yeah. team members particularly virtually talk to me about how it actually gets done how does the sausage get made how, does, how do you keep everybody coordinated and delivering upon the promise
0: of going yeah it sort of blows my mind like hearing you say 65 employees like i, I just something like it doesn't really feel like that much until we go do a company retreat and you're like, oh wow, we have a lot of people here. This is pretty (laughs) cool. I think one of the things that we've done a bit more recently is think about how many employees to hire. For us, that's tying it back to like a revenue per employee metric. I think that could depend on what type of business you're running. But you can look at like public company comps. I think Apple's like, one or $2 million per employee, which is ridiculous. And then I think like super high growth SaaS, like B2B type companies might have it at like $100,000 per employee. So, you know, they're burning cash because that's just not enough. And so you got to find out like what makes sense for your business and then do your best to hold within a specific range so that it doesn't get out of hand. But I think what we found is the more employees that you hire the more that obviously you'll be able to do without thinking about it, but each and every single one of those employees is looking for their growth. They wanna grow in in their role. They might want a promotion, they might wanna become a manager. So a lot of it is like matching the opportunities with the business, with like what that individual wants. And there is a great period of time where those align. And then there's sometimes that time where they no longer align. Like maybe they want to go this way with their career and that is just not simply an opportunity at the company. Or maybe the company wants to go this way and that means no longer an opportunity for the employee. So I think those are like some of the more difficult periods in terms of having employees. Are you
1: a pretty quick to fire kind of guy? Are you like, hey, this isn't working or what's your kind
0: of... It depends what it is. I think if it's a behavioral thing or a cultural thing, Yes. If it is a performance thing, not as quick, because I think that can be fixed over time. Right. It's like, that's really interesting. How would you fix it? Make sure that we're like clear on expectations. Maybe we had different expectations on what the role was or like what the goals were that we're aiming for. But yeah, I mean, when you start hiring, like that is a commitment, I think, to grow and build that type of company. I think it's very hard to hire five to ten people and then say, "Okay, we're done hiring now," because they are all looking to grow themselves. And so it's like, how long can you match the opportunities of the company with the what the employees are looking for? So the way I want to close it, I want
1: to hear about your CEO schedule because we, we heard like the kind of founder schedule, which is Brazil, Europe, and then it's like yeah. the product market fit schedule, which is Everything on rails and I'm heads down in my apartment for two years. I love that because it's such a common theme I hear. What does the CEO
0: schedule look like? I think there's like the schedule that I like. And then there's the schedule that sometimes is necessary. So the schedule I like is pretty structured where no meetings in the morning. I'm doing whatever I've identified as the most important thing between nine and 11. And then catching up on on inbox type stuff, slack messages, all of that between 11 and 12, eat a quick lunch. And then in the afternoon, team meetings, one on ones, maybe some more deep work if I have time if if there's not a bunch of meetings that day. And then One thing that I love that we do is flex Fridays. And so we have no meetings on Fridays or like no recurring meetings on Fridays. And so you can swap your Friday for Saturday, Friday for Sunday or half day Friday for half day on Saturday or something like that. So if there's something you want to go do, I think that's nice. And I also think it's nice for me just in terms of having a full like heads down day to get stuff done. So I think that's like the more ideal version of my schedule and then Mm -hmm. When you do a rebrand like we, we just did, uh, yeah. it was all hands on deck. And, and I threw all of that out of the window and you know, stayed up until 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. doing whatever was needed to, to get stuff done. The way I think about it is like, how can I maintain at like an 85, 90% threshold so that I have the energy to dial it up to 100 or 110 when absolutely necessary?
1: Yeah, I love that. How structured are you about like the deep work sessions and what would be example projects you'd take on during those hours?
0: I'm fairly structured. I wouldn't say I'm perfect at it, but I I really do like to have like an hour or two hours to work on something. I think like some recent stuff, right, is preparing for our leadership on site. So we're all going to meet up for a few days in person and we've all submitted topics. And I want to make sure that I've given proper thought to all of those topics so that I can be fully present and have great conversations there. I think maybe... Reviewing something of high importance from one of the the VPs that report to me, like here is a marketing strategy or here is a product strategy. I want uninterrupted. Let me go deep on this for an hour or two so I can provide the best feedback I can. Versus like jumping into Slack, then I'm over here, that I'm over there answering emails. Like it, it just doesn't work for me personally. I think for some people it might. So. Those are some of the
1: examples that come to mind recently. Do you find it more stressful now that the company's at scale and you're responsible for so much than you did, say, when you were in the apartment for two years, just banging away
0: all waking hours? It's definitely a different kind of stress. I think it before it was more of a time stress where it was like, how do I get more hours out of the day so that I can do more? And now it's more of like a mental weight stress of, How can I have enough hours in the day to give the proper thinking, my best thinking to the things that I need to work on? Because the things now have much more downstream impacts than before. It's like editing code or responding to somebody. And now it's, and I'm not trying to downplay this because those are very important, but it was like at different levels for my brain in terms of processing them and working on them. Because now, like, I can't work as long as I used to unless I'm doing the tasks like I used to. Like, I can't provide great thinking for 12 hours in a day.
1: Final piece, it's a tough one for entrepreneurs in an early stage or that have yet to start up yet. What sort of advice would you have for them, especially those who are seeking to achieve the sorts of success that you've had?
0: I think there's something about what we were talking about earlier, where... Maybe being a bit more flexible on the specific idea and trying a lot of things, making sure that you like build your skill set and improve your core skill set during that time, but don't necessarily get attached to like one idea that might not be working. You don't want to feel like a quitter, right? There's like an ego thing. Like you tell people you're working on something, and then the next time you see them, you tell them you're working on something else, and it's hard. Because people are like, when are you gonna figure this thing out? Like, I thought you were building a business. But I think you have to get past that and just like keep iterating until you find something that works the way that you want it to work. And maybe that is optimizing for personal freedom, or maybe that's optimizing for building a large company. Like that's entirely up to you. And I think that can change over time too. Brian K. Well, we appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on the TMBA pod.
1: Hey, this was fun. Thanks, Dan. Big shout out to Brian Kidwell, the CEO of Going.com. They get some incredible deals. It's really interesting. My favorite part is uh the mistakes and pricing. Like something about that makes me feel like an insider. Like some data entry clerk at American Airlines put up the wrong price. You can go to Rome for 50 bucks. <laughs> <Fugazi>. <laughs>
0: I've found a couple of those in my day. It's cool that they collect them. You know, Dan. Airline travel for me is just, uh, it's amazing. And at the same time, it's a bummer. Like the other day, we were going on a family trip to Colorado. And like, I just literally, this is what happened. I like thought about how my day was gonna be spent in Colorado in Austin airport. Like I thought about the way I was gonna get treated. Like I thought about all these things and I literally just hopped in my truck and drove to Colorado. (laughs) I had the tickets and everything.
1: Fired up the audio book.
0: Yeah. It's just incredible. I mean, obviously I can't do that. Barcelona or Bangkok, I'll be using going for that. But uh, it's one of these things, man. I hope it gets better because it's uh, gradually been getting worse for years.
1: Big shout out to fellow Austinite, Brian Kowal for stopping by the show. This is what I'm calling a CIA episode. It's a call Ian after. When I do these interviews, certain interviews are at that point where it's like, I got to call Ian and tell him about what Brian told me. And uh, I just think it's cool that there's that ecosystem where we're learning from the guests. I call you in after, we got to write it down and then we got to take it to the team because uh, there's a lot of gold in here for me. So I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. We're going to go get back to work. We'll see you guys next Thursday morning. See you then.